You're about to join Jerry Parker, Maritz Siebert, and Niels Kostrup-Larsen on their raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. Another week has flown by, and Jerry Parker, Maritz Siebert, and I, Niels Kostrup-Larsen, are delighted to be back with this week's edition of the Systematic Investor series where we try to make sense of the recent market action through the lens of a rules-based investor, as well as offering our thoughts and comments to the great questions we get from our listeners. Jerry Moritz, good morning, good afternoon. How are you doing this Saturday in November? Doing great. Good morning, good afternoon. Yes, hi guys. Doing well. Yeah, cold. great. Cold here in Richmond, so... Yeah, it's that time of year, isn't it? Yes, you know, I was uh, trying to uh, think of something interesting to uh, to pick at, at the, for this week, but there wasn't really a lot of excitement, uh, that at least that I spotted. I mean, the S&P pretty much finished where it started. We had a bit of a flattening of the yield curve. The VIX finished around 12.5. And, and gold and crude, even uh, those sectors, I mean, finished within 50 basis points of where they started. So, of course, there was... A little bit of movement in some of the commodities like lean hogs and coffee, but um, for the most part, I thought it was pretty uneventful. I guess most of the action nowadays happens live TV from Capitol Hill with all these impeachment hearing going on. But that's something we leave to the politicians to uh, sort out. So with that very little intro, uh, Marts, I'm interested to hear how if your week was a little bit more exciting than uh, what I could point at. Relatively uneventful, Niels. Um, but I've made fifty basis points, I think, when I had a when I had the last look. So, so not much. And uh, you know, the bonds they've stabilized a bit. I mean, as you know, the past couple of weeks they've been on a relatively strong move down, yields rising um, in Germany, in the U.S., pretty much around the world, in Australia as well, in Canada. Um, and that, you know, at, at least for the time being, has stopped a bit or quieted down. So uh, the long with bond positions, which I still have, not to the extent I used to have them, but are still long, um, they've recovered a bit. And um, and all the other markets I found were just relatively quiet. Uh, equities trying, you know, they've made new highs, but it's not really like, you know, sprinting another 1% or 2% higher. It's kind of like up there. And energies, I remember WTI flip flopping around between, I don't know, 58 and 56 and back and forth. So really not a strong trend there. Not a trend at all, really. Uh, Euro dollar relatively stable at 110 and a half, roughly. Um, so really not that much of a movement. And uh, and so, yeah, so definitely I've just mentioned it prior to uh, the start of the recording. Uh, one major position change, which is... The Bitcoin long, Bitcoin long, that's gone. That's history for now. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Yeah, I mean, on our side, it was pretty much as flat as you can get in terms of performance, I think, within just a, a few basis points uh, from last week. I mean, it was a seemingly quiet week, of course. I mean, equity is still continuing to flirt with these all-time highs. Um, but we did see a bit of a pullback this week. So the equity sector you know, inflicted a little bit of uh, pain uh, in our program. Uh, the softs, things like coffee, cocoa, also uh, kind of held performance back this week. But the biggest sort of market in terms of give back uh, was really the Mexican peso. But we saw 
uh, other markets in the currency sector, I guess on the back of a stronger dollar, uh, do well. So more than offset those uh, peso uh, losses. Uh, fixed income, energies, grains were fine on our side. And actually the biggest positive contribution uh, this week uh, was from Lean Hawks. So nice to see, um, you know, smaller commodity markets having a, a decent impact. I think overall the theme for us this month has really been reduction of risk overall, um, less conviction in some of the signals, certainly bonds being reduced. We've seen some, um, you know, more positive signals coming out of the energy sector, so not not short as we were going into the month. And stocks, um, yeah, I mean, obviously long, but uh, maybe not quite as long as we were uh, in the beginning of the month. So, yeah, nothing out of the ordinary uh, in in uh, in that sense. But single stocks, you never know. They could have had some really interesting moves. You never know, Jerry. Definitely some big moves in the stocks this week. You know, it's just random that I happen to trade some of these stocks, so I don't have an unlimited universe. I pare it down to like 35 stocks. So, But Tesla had a big upside move and a big down move, I guess, on Friday after doing something with a truck. I'm not sure what. Then uh, Target, which I've been long for a while, boring, nothing going on there, but it's a really good moving stock, and it was up a lot, $13 one day on earnings or something like that. So, uh, But once again, they're all in the portfolio strictly based upon their ability to add diversification like Bitcoin. And um, so that was a fail trade on the f- first try, but I'm happy that it's liquid and we can trade it. Most of the markets that I'm long are sh- way off their are off their highs and most of the shorts are way off their lows but I guess uh, the Israeli shekel made a new high for some reason and I've been long that for a while not a lot going on but still hoping to see the uh, a lot of my recent trades have been immediate failures so I don't really enjoy that with the you know, cocoa bean oil longs so I look at these things and shake my head. So not happy. Are you involved in any of the Schwab TD Ameritrade potential merger? Or do you trade any of those stocks? No. And Tiffany either. I don't trade Tiffany. I like to follow things like that. And it's kind of interesting to see what's going on there. And sometimes you get lucky and you get a big pop. Back in the day, you know, I, I was long some stock and, uh, you know, strictly based on trend following. And I, we got a... It got a takeover bid just a few days after we bought it, and we got a call from the SEC saying, uh, we want to need to ask you a few questions about this long. And we were really proud, you know, oh, well, you know, we have this systematic approach, trend following, we buy it. Okay, okay, that's enough, that's enough. Okay, you're fine, move on. So <laughs> they weren't that interested in hearing how we got long. Sure, no. I, I read somewhere, I, uh, I saw an article that if they are allowed to merge, they would end up with something like 70% of the RIA custody or something like that, which seems um, pretty high nowadays with all these uh, rules about competition. So um, time will tell. I've been a, you know, a guest every now and then, maybe once every other month on the TD Ameritrade TV show. And so uh, it's really fun to be on that show and talk about the markets and try to figure out a way to throw in a little bit of trend, but have, a, I guess, some fundamental views as well. So uh, we'll see what happens with that that organization. Sure, absolutely. 
So not so much happening in the markets, as I'm sure everyone can tell, but it doesn't mean that Twitter necessarily was quiet. Who knows? We could have made a new high on some of the tweets. So uh, what golden nuggets do you have for us this week, uh, Jerry, that we can dig into? Uh, we've got actually quite a few questions as well. So um, hopefully it'll be super exciting today with all the themes that comes up. Yeah, I mean, I had a lot of things I was interested in this week, more so than maybe other people were interested in them. But there was a good article in the Financial Times about picking stocks, how quants and QE shook the cult of the stock picker. And of course, I'm not a big fan of the concept of stock picking in general, but my comment to the article, my first one was, it's the system that creates the profit and the edge. It doesn't matter much if the stock is a good one or not. Then I quote the article says, it looks like no manager can pick stocks anymore. He believes being an active manager is a dirty term now. And my comment was, no one can pick, that is predict, and no one ever could. So that got a lot of interest. And I you know, feel like from our point of view, trend, systematic trend point of view, we don't look for these uh, markets to add value or an edge or mostly uh, for diversification that we include them. And then we expect our model to transform these markets into something that's going to make money for us. Indeed. I'm not so sure I have any sort of real thoughts or comments on that. I mean, it is the, the continuous battle we have. People tend to prefer the experts that go on air and make their predictions compared to people who kind of ditch the story and play the odds instead, which is what we do. So, yeah, I mean, we'll see if, if that ever changes. Who knows? Was this the, uh, the Buffett article? I, I read an article on, on Buffett in the Financial Times this past week, or I you know, skimmed over it, where it said that you know, somebody had recreated Buffett and outperformed Buffett by picking cheap stocks you know, with low PEs and systematically doing that. Is that the article you're referring to? Uh, I'm not sure. Maybe. Okay. Well, I would agree it is the system, you know, because if you follow that system and you just stick with it, then you'll have, you know, a bunch of bad trades in there and you have a bunch of good trades in there. But it takes the emotion out. And I think most of the drag uh, from anybody that believes that they can pick anything or predict anything is, um, you know, there's a emotional drag because you get attached to a certain stock and you end up making the wrong decisions. Um, you know, holding on to losers and selling winners too early. That is the, the major one, which is so easy to do. And if you have a system that avoids doing that, then I'm not surprised that it outperforms uh, those people. Yeah. And I think trying to have your an approach, whether it's systematic or not, that's going to pick the right markets. I think it's much harder and probably almost impossible versus setting the markets and then having the system know when to get in and out of those. And I think that's just something we should emphasize that just like we don't try to pick cocoa or we don't try to pick the Swiss franc, oh, these are the markets to trade. They're part of our portfolio and our system will tell us when they're a good markets to trade. And then we don't really want need them to be good markets. I mean, you know, Enron would have been like the perfect stock for us. Horrible stock, but a great trade. We buy it on the way up and we get short on the way down. So you got that element as well the shorts as well. I think that it may come as a surprise to most people, to some people that I think trying to be a stock picker is predicting. And, you know, no one believes you can really predict. And 
Sure, sure it doesn't work. Sure, it's hard. To, I don't know if that it's ever worked. I mean, I guess to the other point to that is really that, you know, when you look at people who do their equity research, I mean, even if they had pretty much perfect information about how a company is doing, I mean, there is no guarantee that they, you know, that they can guess which direction the the stock uh, and how it's going to react. I mean, that's the that's the other thing on that. But I think speaking about picking markets, uh, Moritz, I don't know if you want to talk a little bit about because you said you you've actually picked a market this week to add to your portfolio. Um, so uh, I thought that could be interesting to hear a little bit about your thought process and 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 why you decided to add another market to um, to trade. Yeah, I'm happy to report that. I've added uh, Singapore iron ore to my portfolio. So it's, it's iron ore traded on the SGX, that's the Singaporean exchange. And I've been looking at that market for quite a while, a couple of months, and wanted to see and observe liquidity and spoke to brokers, like how do you trade that? When do you trade that? Which session do you use to trade? Uh, how does it settle? Like, you know, it's just kind of like finding out the nuts and bolts of how that market works. And then, you know, I, I looked at uh, the behavior of that market or, you know, what what it could add to my portfolio in terms of diversification benefit. And um, it turned out, at least for me, that it is a nice market to add to the portfolio. I mean, it, it does have positive correlation to some of the other markets, such as, for instance, copper every once in a while, right? But uh, it is still um, uncorrelated enough so that it does add value to the portfolio. And then it was kind of like a no-brainer to just say, you know what, let's let's go, let's do it. Um, the system can handle it. I can produce the orders. I can send the orders out. I can work with them. I can reconcile them automatically. You know, import them into my system. So really, there wasn't there wasn't anything speaking against adding that market. And if it diversifies my portfolio even more, it's liquid to trade. Why not? Is there any kind of um, correlation level you're looking for uh, before you say, yeah, that definitely adds value to my uh, portfolio? No, I um, I don't have a a hard level saying that, you know, if it is correlated by more than 0.75 or so, then it's a no-go. I may add a market if it's 0.8 correlated uh, to my portfolio and it may get a smaller weight, you know, in combination with the markets uh, that have high correlation to it. But um, I don't have a fixed rule. So there you go. There's the discretionary element, right, that we all have. What market do you add? Why do you add it? How much risk do you give that market? And so forth. Sure. Cool. And then when the 0.8 changes to 0.4 or 0.6, then what do you do? Yeah. So we've talked about this before, how it's very difficult to um, figure this out in a systematic way because things can change. And then... Do you change or do you say, no, I think it was 0.8 or it may come back to 0.8, uh, so I'll just leave it the way it is. So I find that a big puzzle. Yeah. But thanks for sharing that uh, process, Moritz. Um, very useful. What else uh, happened in Twitterland, uh, Jerry, this week? Uh, well, there was a paper I saw from, I think you sent it to me, Niels, a few weeks ago, and I finally got around to it. And I don't think we've talked about it. It's a paper from Abbey Capital. Sure talking about CTA trend following performance has been uh, below long-term average levels recently, but they say the returns have not been outside standard statistical expectations, and we've seen difficult periods in the past. 
Historically, major market trends have tended to occur episodically, with several major moves occurring in some years and relatively few in others. The lower number in recent years may just reflect normal statistical fluctuation. So kind of a similar results from other papers we've seen that basically are saying that long-term trend following from CTAs is alive and well. Recent performance or lower performance is due to the lack of major market moves. And they go on to, on to say, if market moves had become quicker, one would reasonably expect faster systems to show better performance in recent years, but they find no evidence of this. So they're not advocating slower systems now that we've all, or a lot of us, have gone to longer-term systems. That's not going to help either. That hasn't looked any better. So I guess we stick with what we're doing, and it'll turn around and look like the past, hopefully. So I have an interesting... Um maybe interesting point to share there. And I, I gave Niels a call earlier this week to, uh, to inform him about this. I'm not going to mention any names. That would be appropriate. But, but this week I had a meeting with a very established systematic trading firm in Munich. And we, you know, started to discuss trend following and recent performance. And there was a senior researcher uh, there. And he said, it is for them, like an almost a certainty that trend following returns have decayed and that they will decay going forward. And that um, the future sharp ratio that you should expect from a systematic trend following system will definitely be lower than they have been in the past. And that trend following therefore does not warrant as high a risk or capital allocation added as it used uh, in the past based on, you know, the last 100 or 150 years, which they have examined over various trend speeds, all sorts of things, and um, very adamant in their conclusion that, you know, this decay, this degradation of degradation of returns is, is, is there. It's not a statistical fluke. It exists and it's not going away. And, um, and that's that. And, and I then kind of like countered that with, you know, saying, well, for instance, the paper from Abby, even though I didn't use that as an example, and there's other studies that we all know on the historical performance of trend following, and that even if, you know, if you look back 100 or 150 years, there's, there have always been those episodes where it hasn't worked that well. And you could look at, you know, some of the CTAs with long-term track records, such as, for instance, Dunn or, you know, Chesapeake. And, and look at their returns. And, you know, Niels, you were saying, uh, on, you know, multiple times in our podcast that, in fact, your returns have gotten better in the past couple of years, and they haven't degraded. And, but, but they, they kind of like, they discounted that completely. They say, no, 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 this is uh, maybe then just one observation, but uh, they're, they're standing by their observation that trend following is uh, getting worse, the performance. Yeah, I mean, I think it's an interesting um, view uh, to to take, and of course, we're all entitled to our different yeah. uh, opinions. We base our conclusions on the evidence we see in our trading, as and as you rightly say, we certainly have been able to improve uh, what we do. So, uh, you know, research does play a role. Uh, maybe we have the benefit of not being a mega CTA. Um, I'm sure that has something to do with it. It's like saying that just because you have a decade of of low return, I mean, let's 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 take a real example. I mean, equities. If we use the U.S. equities as as the example, they were down twelve percent 
from January 1st, 2000 to the end of 2009. Does that indicate that equities should not make money in the following decade? Well, we know now that they made tremendous amount of money in the following decade. So just because you have a decade of lower returns, um, you know, I, I really don't think that you can say conclusively that that means trend following is not going to uh, to work in the future. I mean, um, without a doubt, I think it's true that the 90s were an incredibly strong performance uh, decade for, for trend followers. And maybe we won't have exactly that environment in a specific decade, right? It could still be over a five-year period or seven-year period. Um, but I just think it's it's... I think it's a little bit silly to make these conclusive forecasts, um, frankly. I mean, nobody knows the future, and why should they uh, be the exception? That's just my view. Yeah, I would have uh, really liked to know exactly why they say that, because um, I think that there are some legitimate uh, reasons that that could definitely be true. And I think the most the scariest one out there is that the short-term traders and the algorithms are targeting CTAs and creating more false breakouts and then uh, setting off an avalanche of selling like in the bonds we had this year. And so that's going to play havoc with the return. So when we get the trends, it's going to be difficult to capture the percentage that we used to capture. And then we get a lot of more false breakouts. And so I mentioned on the podcast that, you know, I mean, anecdotally, every trade I put on in the past few weeks, it's immediate loser after I get my full position on. And so, you know, so I think these things can happen and they're no fun. And that's a really good thing to predict. And it, uh, it might be true. And, uh, but I do think that if on the back of all of these reports that says, well, basically, no, that is not what we've seen from AQR and from Abby. And I think, at least one or two other groups, it's just a lack of trends, then, okay, then go ahead and predict and, and let us see evidence that you are, that specifically what you're saying is, we're not going to see these trends any longer. You know, we're not, we're just not going to see them. The ones you've seen in the commodities, you haven't seen in a while, you're not going to see them in the future. And, and so, okay, that's good. Then why? Why do you make this claim that we're not even going to see them? You may not make as much percentage on the big trends that you used to, you may have more false breakouts, but look, you're not even going to see those trends like you have in the past. And that's really, uh, I would even say Achilles heel of the trend following, but it's way bigger than the heel. It is a big, huge assumption that we are going to see these big trends like we've seen them that are going to pay for all these small losses. And so why, where, where do you come up with this idea that we're not going to see them? There's something now fundamentally baked into the cake that uh, the power of the central banks maybe is going to remain and increase and they'll knock down the commodity trends and inflation. So uh, that's what I'm more interested in. Not the claim, which I definitely think it's definitely possible, but how about the reason that you make the claim? I think there's a couple of interesting things to dig into. I mean, first of all, I very much like the paper that Abbey Capital uh, produced. I think they, they uh, deal with some of the uh, arguments that has been uh, put forward as the reason why trend following um, have produced, uh, you know, lower returns uh, in the last few years. Um, but I think they deal with them very elegantly and I think they produce a decent amount of, of uh, explanation slash evidence for why 
those arguments um, don't seem to hold up, such as CTAs are too, you know, the community of CTAs are too large. I know it's difficult to to completely say accurately how big is the community because people could still be using trend-following approaches but not be a CTA and therefore it's it's a little bit of a, a of a problem. I also like the idea that uh, you mentioned Jerry that there's no evidence that shorter term strategies are doing better if the markets have changed so you know the Trump tweets are producing shorter term moves there's no evidence to suggest that shorter term trading has been more profitable. I actually do like the idea of there just being um, smaller movement in GDP across the world, meaning that central banks, politicians, or maybe just luck has left it with a decade of relatively stable um, economic growth, which in certainly in the um, financial markets that we know a lot of the bigger firms have large allocation to, there has perhaps been one, smaller big moves, and also when they do turn, maybe they turn a little bit quicker, not because that there is some conspiracy against trend following, but maybe more because the economies for a period of time have been quite coordinated. They've, you know, compared to, they've been in sync compared to maybe the last uh, or the previous uh, 20 years where there were more divergence in the economies. Asia was doing one thing while Europe was doing another thing and the US was doing a third. Then suddenly they all came together after the financial crisis. They were using same policies and then created a more coordinated economic um, rhythm, so to speak. But I don't think if we look back that that is unusual, that you'll get these uh, periods where economies are, you know, um, going up and down more more or less in, in tandem, so to speak. And if we look at that data, uh, it just seems to me, or not necessarily the data, but it just seems to me that there is more divergence now. We're now seeing different types of problems and policies being adapt, you know, being put in place in Asia, in Europe, and the U.S. So, you know, you could argue that that might give more opportunities in the future. And then the final thing we should maybe not um, completely discount as well, and that is we always talk about how trend-following strategies in general produces better returns on the long-sided trades. And if we look at the commodity sector to a large extent, they've been short for quite a while. And so I don't know, I'm just, and I'm not saying that this will hold up uh, with any, but I think directionally I'm right in saying that maybe a big part of our portfolio has not necessarily had the opportunities that we would like them to have. Again, it doesn't mean that commodity prices can't go up for the next 10 years, but we know when you look at the big cycles of commodities, they tend to over 30 years spend 20 years going down and 10 years going up. That, you know, look at gold, for example, and go back and you'll probably see that. So anyways, just a few thoughts. And then uh, one of the things Moritz said, which is interesting, is um, the sharp ratio will be lower, permanently lower, and it's not worth investing in. But I kind of wonder, a portfolio that uses a systematic trend-following approach and it trades currencies, commodities, stocks, and bonds, long and short, is that sharp ratio going to be worse than the world's most popular investment, which is long equities. And so that, you know, let's, we may, it may be lower, it may not be worth a large allocation, but it's probably going to be worth a larger allocation than allocating to equities, which is what most people do. And 
I did have this one tweet that may fit in well here. It's from Morgan Housel, and it was this week, and he says, it will be right one day, but, quote, returns will be much lower in the future, unquote, has been a constant thing for 10 years, during which the market tripled. Return expectations should be kept in check, but but so should forecasting humility. Yes. Absolutely. And I just get a feeling I've been in these meetings before where these guys come in and uh, they have no, you know, they don't trade. They don't, uh, they don't have a strategy necessarily. They're evaluating uh, managers and they just love to sit there in front of the trend followers after low performance uh, and just give it to you. So I just hate those kind of meetings where they're just teeing you up to uh, to tell you that everything you believe in is wrong. It's really no fun. I mean, we know, of course, um, that this in this case where it came from another manager, of course, people will take notice if a big manager comes out and saying, well, you know, we don't think trend is going to do that great. But, you know, very often there's a reason why they come out and say that and then they have something else in the in their portfolio that they think is the greatest thing, uh, you know, um, that people should invest in. So I think we all have to take everything we hear with a little bit of a pinch of salt and and um, let the evidence, you know, people people are smart enough out there, investors are smart enough out there to to find the managers who still produce the returns that justifies the fees and 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 so on and so forth. I mean, if a manager for different reasons are not able to do so, that's fine. But it doesn't mean that they can predict that everyone else is going to be in the same boat. Exactly, and that's what we just said, you know, earlier on the podcast. Is nobody can predict anything, right? So you could say just, you know. Imagine for a second, I'm not saying that I know, I'm just imagining, you know, um, that maybe there's outflows of those bank-driven QIS trend following, like the, the, the naive, or not, don't want to call them naive, but, you know, the copycat type of trend following systems. Um, nobody knows, like you said, Niels, how much money there really is that is traded in a trend following way. Uh, maybe if you know performance stays as it is, there's outflows there, right? And the the entire trend following space lightens up. Maybe interest rates rise and central bank policies become more divergent again. And who knows? In five years' time, this is a completely different environment. Uh, in general, overall for financial markets and for trend following, and we're back to 0.5, 0.6, shops. And I'm fine with 0.5, and I've said that before, right? And and then so you know the. The discussion that I just had this week is then kind of like obsolete because it just turned out to be different. So I don't know. Um, and I'll just continue trading the thing because I have no evidence that I should not be doing that. As of today, I do not have the evidence that I should stop trading my trend-following trading system. And neither, to their credit, neither did they, they're, they're doing it. They're just saying, like, in competition with all the other systems that they trade, also mechanical or systematic trading systems, trend-following doesn't deserve as much of an allocation or as high of an allocation any longer as it used to in the past because the other systems that they've come up with and which they trade live have higher sharp ratios and higher expected sharp ratios, they say, and therefore... Trendfollow needs to take a back seat. Um, but it's been quite clear in this conversation that they're a firm believer that, you know, what they have observed over the past 30 years, a constant decay, not only over the last five years, but like an ongoing degradation of, you know, sharp ratios for trend following and that they're, that they're sure it's not going to stop.
<laughs> I would be a lot more impressed if they would have predicted this before it happened. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. That would be on. so nice. Exactly. I mean, come on. And then how, um, you know, what's your first thought before you, that those words come out of your mouth? You know, my first thought is before anything, well, it may not sound like it to people who listen to this podcast, but when I'm more calm and I'm in front of people, you know, your first thing that you're thinking about before it comes out of your mouth needs to be, am I going to be wrong on this? How is this going to, uh, what do they say? How is it going to weather or how is it going to, you know, what's going to happen in, you know, in the, in the next few years with this statement of mine? And so in 2008, and with the lost decade, you know, now step up and tell me the market's going to go from that low to where it is today. Don't, don't tell me, well, now we, we don't think that stocks are going to do well in the future because they've had such a bad decade. You can't rely on stocks anymore. No, step up when it's the worst possible. And, uh, you know, just it's pretty easy to, to be pessimistic at the lows. And uh, that's, I don't know, just no shame, no humility to, uh, I don't think it's going to, I don't think it's, I know. now's not when you want to be predicting bad things for, for trend and CTAs. No, and you never want to be predicting them to begin with, right? Um, but you know, it's it, it's just been it, it's a good like you know, it, it it's been a an interesting conversation. Like I I don't mind having had it. It's just you know, I mean, there is no there is no winner, you know, there is no debating contest, and you know, one person leaves with the evidence, and yeah, I've won the argument, right? But I mean, it's a different different way of looking at things. I mean, they've said like even this year. With you know returns relatively good for the trend following space, as they said, it's probably a statistical fluke. It's one of those outliers, and you know there may be more good years in the future, but then they'll probably be statistical flukes. I mean, it's a great conversation. It's an important one, um, I think, and we we need to hear all sides of of the thing. But I, you know, equally, there was an analysis out, and I forget who it was, but there was an analysis out this week saying, oh yeah, but you know, CTA returns are generally mean reverting. So after a bad quarter, you should basically buy the CTAs because the next quarter, based on all the evidence, is usually a strong quarter, right? You could say exactly the same, probably uh, about a decade, you know, say, okay, if you have a low returning decade, probably the next decade will be, um, you know, above uh, average. But I also came across um, this week a, a long form interview with Ray Dalio. And uh, I don't know exactly the the quote, but but at the very end, he was asked by the interviewer, you know, what what was the the real um, key to his success, and 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 basically he said is, you know, not knowing exactly what was going to happen and and relying on just the fact that you you know, diversification across all sorts of things and not trying to predict anything in particular. Um, had stood him incredibly well, and 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 so I don't see if if it works for him, why it shouldn't work for for other people. We've never advocated, anyways, that people should put all their money in trend following. Oh, I have, <laughs> but I do think one one thing I think I disagree a little bit on with you, Niels, is that uh, it would be kind of a bummer if you had to be so good at this that um, you know that's the only way you could eke out a point three sharp. So I do think it's not, it's, I think one of the hallmarks of trend following is it all works and it's hard to screw it up. Okay. So maybe Dunn and Chesapeake can do it better and Moritz. Okay. We've had lots of experience in training and, uh, 
smart people working with us. But my gracious, I don't. I'd hate to see a situation where Dunn and Chesapeake. Oh, you can expect uh, the those guys to eke out a profit and uh, make money with trend following, but uh, no longer is taking small losses and uh, going with the trend and following prices and letting your profits run. It doesn't work for anyone else. And so I don't look forward to that particular period. And I do think that would be a major come down from where we are now. Sure. I mean, I don't know if I've said anything to that effect, but but no, I mean, I think the philosophy of trend following is is alive and kicking. There's always going to be some people doing it better than others, but that's fine. It's, you know, that's their job. That's the research that they deliver. But uh, the principles, and I think that's been evidenced uh, for many decades and maybe even centuries, that the principles are as valid today as they were, you know, decades ago. All righty, that was a good um, little discussion from a tweet and a, and a conversation on your side, Moritz. What else uh, have we got going for us today uh, before we jump into some questions? Well, uh, yeah, I didn't enjoy all that. So let's try to change the mood <laughs> a little bit. But uh, I found a couple of good quotes and uh, just randomly on the on uh, trendfollowing.com uh, and they come from Ken Tropin which I like them and I don't know that I'd heard them before and they got a lot of interest from my followers so let's just uh, I'll read these quotes and then we can chat about them uh, the first one is uh, the nature of data is it changes a little all the time the key to success in systems trading is to have a loose fitting suit I can't have a suit that's so tight and perfectly proportioned to me that if I gain two pounds, it won't fit anymore. And uh, so that's another favorite topic of mine is, uh, and kind of what I was saying earlier is that, you know, my suit and Dunn's suit and Moritz's suit, are they the only suits that are going to work? And uh, I don't like that idea. And then also my suit needs to be more uh, loose and not so predictive and fitted to the historical past. And I think that's what he's trying to say. It's okay if you have these drawdowns. It's sort of a sign of robustness, and you're not trying to get too much out of the historical data. You have to be able to wear that suit to every occasion, to a wedding, you know, to a meeting with a lawyer, to for breakfast and all of that. That's, you know, it needs to be your all-round suit that works throughout time. It also must not be a super, like a very, very horrible and terrible suit because... Uh, then your system isn't any good. But it's, it's you know, it's what we're saying all the time about robustness. We cannot, you know, curve it or we must not curve it, um, our systems. And uh, it works because we have this robust, loosely fitting suit, um, which isn't too precise and too smooth. And we just go with that. And we're not embarrassed to wear it. Yeah. And it, I had another tweet that kind of fits in here. And it's from an article about alternative data and AI and machine learning. And it's kind of uh, sort of how we kind of don't like that stuff because it's adding more precision. And we just got finished saying we don't want to be too precise. We don't want to have a smaller sample size. And the quote I pulled from this article is, uh, this data that we offer can be an additional input to either help you confirm or falsify convictions. Think of us as an additional feature within your model. <laughs> and then my, my comment is more data can weaken the model. So we don't want more data and more precision and fewer historical trades to look at. 
We're, we want more trades to look at that are less precise, that are going to fit more in the future with crazy things that are going to happen in the future. The fundamentals are not going to be similar. And it's going to have maybe bigger drawdowns. So it's a whole different worldview of investing, uh, more data or less data. I'll take price only and what comes with that uh, versus, you know, what these alternatives are. And maybe that's what your friends were saying in this meeting is that uh, you're going the opposite direction. If AI is going to work and machine learning is working and we're going to get better and more accurate and more precise with lower drawdowns and more uh, better trades, then how can trend following keep working at the same time? I think it probably can, but uh, we're going to be slow to give up. I am. I um, I went through another behavioral finance book this week. Uh, I really love that the um, you know that area of finance, and I think there's a couple of uh, you know um, great guys out there. Um, you know Daniel Crosby, I've mentioned a few times. Uh, Brian Portnoy uh, was the book I went through this week, and and um, you know a lot of their research, of course, is done based on very long periods of time studying humans, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, but what always comes across in these books is that it is wrong to believe that more information um, gives us the ability to make better decisions. Um, I think most of the evidence is that it, it's the contrary. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, I completely agree with what Jerry says. And uh, um, but, but, but again, we as humans have this tendency to de- believe that if we know more we can make better decisions. I'm not so sure that is true. No, I mean, it's absolutely not true. Um, I do think that sort of the thing that I, that I get a little nervous about with behavioral stuff is that I don't want to be in a situation where I'm going to, I'm the only one who can do it. And I think to some degree, that's sort of where it rests, is that as long as there's not too many people who have the backbone and the, can withstand human biases by creating a systematic approach and following it, then it could continue to work. But I think that's another issue with us is that if I'm not the only person and then we're not the only people. And so there could be one of these days, a majority of people who embrace systematic trading and put themselves in the same situations we do and have, and it could be less profits for everyone when everybody gets more systematic and disciplined. So but you know what, Jerry? I mean, it, it, I think it's a good point you mentioned, but I think the reason why that will not happen, and obviously that is a bold claim to make, but I think the reason why these behaviorally based strategies will probably not get overcrowded is because they're so damn hard to do. Who wants to be put through what we're going through in terms of drawdowns and volatility when you can choose to go into a strategy that just looks smooth and low risk, et cetera, et cetera. I think that's where most investors will seek to find their profits. And that's exactly what's going to leave us in our little field um, to do what we do and continue to do it, not in a straight line um, and, uh, you know, difficult at times, um, but profitable uh, over the long run. And embracing uh, commodities, for instance, like... uh, this horrible period of short trades. And, you know, I was thinking, what's our last big commodity trade we've had? Short energy, 2014. So even when we've had mm-hmm. one that set us apart and we crushed it, crude going from 90 to in the 20s, 
it was still a short. So, and so, uh, and so embracing, um, markets, which I think we have no trouble doing that have not performed well recently or in the past five or 10 years is a huge edge. And now continuing to embrace a strategy that hasn't done as well as just long equities. So it's, it's a two part thing. It's equities only, and it's the strategy, um, both have not done as well. So, yeah, I think uh, that's a huge edge continuing to not fight the last war. And it leads me right into another, just like we planned it, which we didn't, but uh, maybe the final tweet, I guess, of the week. And it's another one that comes from uh, Ken Tropin in, on trendfollowing.com. He says, most long-term trend followers are doing something that is difficult to do discretionarily. That is, wait for a market to make a new high price and then get in. It's never, oh, I bought this right. It's usually, I really bought this wrong. So uh, that's the way I feel about my um, lead, cocoa, bean oil, and etc. So I've, I've really bought that wrong. And uh, the market didn't just take off after I bought it. So it's uh, more painful than that. But you're right. And that is very helpful to have some pain and suffering. Absolutely. And sometimes it may be the other way around, right? You got you got out of your Bitcoin and it looked wrong to get out at the time because it rallied afterward and now it looks good to have been out of the thing. We just don't know. And the answer is always uh, to re- avoid uh, these c- pattern, uh, market pattern um, comments. You know, they just, they don't mean anything. We're, you know, th- when this happens or that happens or I'm unhappy and... It's basically, you're not going to do anything until your exit gets hit. You're not going to do anything until your entry rule gets hit. And that's the rule. And whatever else uh, we sort of see in patterns or we dislike about the markets and we think this is what works or doesn't work, and this is a characteristic of a good trade or a characteristic of a bad trade, none of it really matters or it shouldn't matter until the stop loss or the exit or the entry gets hit. And then we do something and everything else just try to ignore it. Indeed, indeed. What we won't ignore is the questions we get from our in- I was about to say investors. I mean, I mean listeners, um, and um, well, some of them could be investors as well, I guess. Um, so, in any event, if you want to continue to send us your questions, comments, um, by all means, do so. Uh, send it to info at toptradersonblog.com, and we'll be very happy to. Um, to try and answer them as as quickly as we can. So first question, we have to go to the other side of the world, to Singapore. Derek uh, writes to us. So Derek, uh, it's a long uh, email, so I'm just going to give a little bit of content. He has recently moved to Singapore, and he's the only kind of systematic trader in that firm now. And he's um, constrained in terms of the number of markets he trades. Um, so the first question he he has um, is, you know, how can you adapt trend following to a constrained universe? Um, you know, do you add more strategies uh, to the portfolio uh, when you have a, a small number of markets? And then he goes on to ask, how do you educate your fellow PMs, bosses, teammates on what you do uh, when their trading mindset is classical, discretionary, and fundamental? Um and then he very kindly ends up by offering to help grow our little podcast in that part of the world. So, Derek, uh, we appreciate that. Anyways, let's take it step by step. You know, small number of markets that he's allowed to trade, wanting to, 
um, expand? Um, I guess the answer is more strategies, but love to hear your thoughts as well. And of course, what's the best way of trying to educate people who come from the discretionary side of things to uh, embrace um, what we do? Any thoughts, Marge? You pro- you work in a big shop. I'm sure you come across people who maybe uh, are not as strong believers in in what we do as 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 we are. Ah, uh, yeah. I I show them the evidence. I uh, show them track records of uh, you know, like yours, 45 years of in length, and um, and that's something interesting to look at, and many of the other track records too. And you know, there's. Um, there, there is a lot of material out there on the web, all those great books, The Rule, Larry Height, you know, all of that. I mean, there's tons of information and evidence about the way we trade and its advantages. So I'll, I'll speak to them. I'll tell them my opinion and I'll inform them of my views and why I think it's a great trading system. But I also tell them that they, you know, they, they shouldn't just listen to me and, you know, take my word for granted. There is objective and independent sources of information that will must or menos uh, tell them the same thing. And uh, and then it's really up to them, um, you know, to do that or to not do that. You know, I can answer questions and educate them and tell them roughly how, you know, the trend-following trading systems work. Um, but it needs a kind of openness on the other side as well. You know, I've always come across, I've, I've sometimes come across people who are so firm and close in their minds because, you know, they've always been, I don't know, fundamental macro traders or whatever, whatever, or like, you know, fundamental stock pickers that they will never turn around and even consider anything than their own strategy because they're so in love with what they do and they wouldn't jump across the fence or look any other way. Um, so that's that, but maybe more to the technical question at hand here um, with the constrained set of markets. It's unfortunate that it is the case because, you know, as we all know, the more markets you can trade and the less correlated or the more uncorrelated they are, the greater the expected return of that system. So, Derek, if you can, if there's any chance that you can uh, have a discussion with your colleagues and convince them to expand the set of markets that's available to you, that would be a fantastic thing. Um, And that would help a lot. If you cannot do that and... Um, you want to continue trading your trend-following way, then off the top of my head, I can really only say, well, try to diversify as much as you can with your timeframes. But you're not going to get as much out of that uh, compared to the diversification benefit that you would get by diversifying across markets. So this is the little asterisk I would add to that. It will help you a little bit, but not as much as it would if you added more markets to the system. Yeah, not a lot I can add to to that. It's, uh, the markets are the heroes. They're the ones that are going to make your profit and and uh, hold on to them as long as you can. And then they're the best and most robust way to um, limit the drawdown and the standard deviation and the risk in a portfolio by just applying a robust system over as many markets as possible. Yeah, I mean, the only thing I would add to that, because I think uh, Moritz said it very elegantly, is that, um, I mean, we always talk about us having to prove that systematic trading works, even though all the evidence suggests that. So sometimes I think it's fair to ask the people who are against it to prove that it doesn't work um, and it doesn't add value to your portfolio. 
Um, you know, I remember a conversation I had with uh, Alex Grazerman at ISAM uh, a few years back. It's on the podcast. It's a kind of a mini roundtable uh, with Katie Kaminsky and and uh, Roberto Osorio from Don. And and Alex shared a story, uh, which I think is a great, uh, great um, um, example. And he was basically challenging in a client meeting uh, someone to basically say, you know, what assumptions are your investment committee, ma- you know, making in order to get the conclusion you should have no trend? I mean, in his view, from what he said, he said, well, the assumptions would have to be either the trend following consistently loses money or the trend following is consistently very highly correlated to what you have already. And both of those things we know if you pick the right manager is not the case. So sometimes I think it's fair to just challenge people's view and say, well, you know, show us the evidence that suggests that uh, we're wrong. Because there hasn't been a white paper ever written to, as far as I know, that uh, doesn't confirm that an uncorrelated investment uh, strategy like trend following can be beneficial in a traditional portfolio. So And uh, and, uh, trend followers who trade systematically and believe in trend following have made the two classic mistakes of trading, which is not taking small losses and getting out of profits too quickly. And if we've done it, oh my gracious, what do you think discretionary people have done? All you have to do is just ask them, have you had an issue with that before? Oh my gosh, yeah. I've done it so many times in meetings, like this is the heart of what we do. Have you ever had these issues before? People who don't use systems and they're like oh gosh i'm always getting out of my profits too quickly and leaving money on the table and and sometimes i'll let uh, small losses turn into big ones and it kind of devastates uh, all my good performance so uh, i think just through experience people will be honest with themselves and know that they have had the same issues that um, we've had and we would continue to have if we didn't trade uh, by the rules yeah so from singapore we go almost around the globe to South Africa, which is, of course, the beauty of of a podcast. We have a global audience and we appreciate that. So uh, this time we go to Jonathan from uh, Cape Town in South Africa. Jonathan describes himself as a swing trader, so not necessarily someone who has the same style as we do um, and, and the same holding uh, period as, and so on and so forth. So um, the question, so I now quote from, from uh, his email, the question I, that I have um, are one, sample size. If we were to assume a sample size of 5,000 for a given system, that means, to my mind, that a figure in this ballpark must be generated across hundreds of markets, with, uh, even with 20 or 30-year backtest. And this would have to be uh, for exactly the same parameters uh, of that system in order to count as a single sample. Am I right about this? More or less. So I think the question is whether or not you have to have the samples have to be exactly from the same system um, to count as part of your sample size. But I think when we talk about systems, we, we may refer to systems, but it could be different, slightly different, um, you know, obviously different time parameters, et cetera, et cetera. So that's part of why we can generate decent size sample sizes over a 20 or 30 year backtest. Any views on that? I think he's right on. Uh, it's 5,000 from each system. So, yeah, if we use multiple systems, then each one of them needs to have that 5,000. And uh, I thought he was going to go someplace else and say, well, um, all the markets are different, though. Well, that's 
we're we're that's our that's what we're doing. We're saying we're going to trade the same system, the same that has entry, exit, stop loss. Hopefully, not too much more than that. And uh, we're going to trade it over all the markets the same way, and the longs and the shorts, so we can capture all that sample size and say, okay, system one, five thousand trades. System two, five thousand trades, or w whatever the the sample size is. And uh, so that's what we have. And but to some may stand up and say, well, uh, currencies are different than commodities. And so I don't I don't buy that uh, assumption of yours that. If you just trade them all the same, you can say, well, that's sample size. And then some may say, well, shorts are different than longs. And so there's all kinds of possible disagreements. I'm just saying that's what we're doing. And so like it or not, that's, that's how we get to our, uh, we increase our sample size. So let me move on to you, uh, Moritz, for the next uh, couple of questions that uh, Jonathan also had. He says, in sample, do any of you follow a process to reserve a subset of the data for an in sample and another subset for out of sample? And then he goes on about optimization. Optimization with time, from what I can glean uh, as a kind of optimization, the same system is traded with different parameters, e.g. system 1 through system 10. Do you also think of changing the parameters for a single system over time, something like a walk-forward window? For example, uh, for say one year, the look-back used 120 days, and for the next year, it was 97 days. would love your thoughts on this. Okay, Jonathan, let, let's see what... Um, what more it has. So the, the last part of the question is an easy answer for me. That's a straight no. Um, I'm not, well, first of all, I'm not using the, uh, the walk forward um, analysis. And, um, and I also would not allow my uh, time windows to change based, based on that. So, so no, the answer here is a clear no. And then as for um, the in, a, in sample and out of sample, um, question so i do reserve uh, a bit of data for out of sample testing when i design trading systems and i must immediately uh, add to that that i have not yet found that to be um like you know i have not i don't have the evidence that i'm really gaining anything by that i I have picked up that it's, you know, good statistical habit to do that, you know, to design systems that haven't seen all the data so that you have greater odds of improving the robustness of your system by not feeding it all the data. Maybe coming back to that loose suit, maybe the loose suit that we're trying to fit to the data is so loose that it doesn't really matter if we have the system look at all the data and just, you know, get to the full sample size, which... Um, which Jerry correctly said is so important to have this large sample size and then just feed it as much data as you can uh, and design your system because we know, you know, what, what, what we're doing there is we're not trying to, you know, be too specific and too detailed and laser pointed about those things anyways. So I cannot really say, stay, you know, be here and defend that you must reserve 25% of your data for out of sample testing and if you haven't done that then uh, you're doing something wrong i cannot say that and and if you so like me like you know I, I i i've done that i still do that it opens up a whole bunch of other questions like you know you could say well ritz why are you reserving the last 25 or the last 30 percent of the data um 
and you make that data unseen to the system? Why not the first 25 or the first 30%? Why not something in the middle? And why don't you mix it up and you like, you know, you leave two years out in the 1990s and you leave two years out in the 2000s and you leave four years out in the 2010s. And there is just no answer to those questions. Because if you had an answer to those questions, you could say that you believe that uh, more recent data has greater importance or more value to your system than earlier data. And I, I think that's completely wrong. So um, I think all the data is valuable. Um, and, and so for, for the way that we trade, I would just say, you know what, um, I'd, be, I'd be as fine if you just feed your system all the data. And if you, like me, you think, well, let's just be curious and be surprised and you leave the last, you know, 30 or 25% off and you make that out of sample, that just works fine too for our type of trading systems. Well said. Yeah, I don't have much to uh, add to that either. I'm not sure exactly where in the world the, our next question comes from, but it's from Indrius and... Uh, might not have pronounced that completely correct, but let's run with that. Um, so the question is, uh, and I'm not so sure whether this, I mean, it could be the right question, but but let's see. You ask how much risk to take, 15 basis points, 20 basis points, 25 basis points, for example, per ATR, but I'm not sure that that's exactly how we look at things, risk per ATR. So let me turn that over to um, our experts on ATR, Jerry, Moritz. Um, I mean, obviously, the next, the follow-up question is that if you have more markets, you take less risk, and I think that is per market, and I think that is that is true. But but anyways, um, can you talk a little bit about this kind of the, how the risk fits into ATR? Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, I don't think I can ex do much explaining on a podcast, but uh, it's, yeah, definitely the ATR movements are going to tie right into the percentage movement in your capital, no doubt about it. I mean, that's the way I do it. And but what you do, Jerry, though, if I'm uh, if I understand it correctly, what you do is you measure obviously you know where your stop is going to be in terms of ATR, but you're going to risk twenty five basis points. For example, regardless whether it's further away or not, it's just it's just a matter of position sizing and and whether you're going to trade X number of contracts. Um, you know, depending on on the on the closeness of the actual stop, right? The risk will be the same. That doesn't change whether you have a five ATR stop or a three ATR stop on that particular trade. You're still risking the same amount of risk? Oh, probably not. Yeah, probably not. Um, because, um, I don't know, it's just hard to explain. I think okay. that uh, ATR is tied in to everything, and it's definitely tied into um, the number of ATRs you may give a trade, you know, to, before you get out is uh, one way ATR works. And then sure. the movement of the markets every day it's going to be uh, correlated to the ATRs and your. So yeah, I'm looking at that in many different ways, and uh, you know the the placement of your stop uh, two ATRs away is uh, pretty close, and your winning percentage is going to be lower. So it's not a free lunch. Oh, I'll risk less versus uh, an ATR that's further away. The ATR that's further away is better and less risky possible because. 
uh, the close uh, ATR stop is going to give you um, a lot of losing trades, way more losing trades. So it's not it's not this even trade-off all the time. So it's a little more complex to talk about it during uh, on a podcast versus a live event uh, where we can get into it like we did in New York. Very true. Very true. Anything you want to add there, Moritz? Or? Um, not, not much. I mean, I, I think that what I picked up is I'm not risking a certain percentage of ATR. I'm risking a certain percentage of my equity. Right. And I'm using the ATR uh, to figure out you know what what position size i need to have on in order to risk exactly that amount of my equity yeah yes perfect yeah <laughs> i guess you exactly. can't explain it on a podcast <laughs> but not as well as on the live event that's sure yeah, okay i just yeah. can't do it so thank you all right let's move on to uh to brian uh brian is uh sending questions before so nice to see another one from you brian so uh, brian refers to a conversation actually probably the same conversation i was referring to before with alex grayserman and he talked about pensions and endowments and how they can construct a diversified portfolio managers using three four or five uh, different trend following managers so brian asked us to talk a little bit about this topic uh, maybe the question could be you know how many trend followers do you really need in a portfolio i'm not sure brian but uh, so we're going to have to um, freestyle this a little bit um and then also you go on to say that both i and jerry have mentioned and i'm sure that goes for more as well that we are long-term trend based um and then he, you you ask how would you seek out other managers whose funds would be a good complement to yours um is this something that would be difficult outside the pension endowment fund managers. Um, so, um, Moritz, do you want to talk a little bit? I mean, you look at other managers from time to time. Um, so maybe you're a good. It's a good place to start with you in terms of um, if you want to build a portfolio of trend followers. What would you look for in difference? And then, if you want to go outside strictly long-term trend following. What would you look for to add to that um, portfolio if you're not a pension fund um, or an endowment, so to speak? Yeah, let me answer the the systematic um, trend following question. And um, so I am uh, personally invested in some other CTAs. I'm not only trading my own system, but I have money with other CTAs. Um, who I believe can do things and are doing things which I'm not able to do because I don't have the infrastructure set up to do that. I don't have the technology. I don't have the exchange connections. I'm not trading at the speed. I don't have their low commissions, you know, things like that. And and the way that they trade is very diversifying to my long-term uh, trend-following trading style. So um to give an example, I'm not going to mention the name, but I have one um, CTA in my portfolio that is a short-term CTA with holding periods of, you know, two to four days on average. And, you know, this is just not where I am. And uh, so they trade many round turns per million per year. Um, they tell me that, you know, a lot of that is dependent on being directly connected to the exchanges and having, you know, being self-executing and having low commissions and all that type of stuff. And that's great for me. And it's it's worked thus far. I have a very long track record, very good people, I think. And um, 
And that's how I look at it. I would be very unlikely to invest in, um, you know, in a CTA that is, you know, around the same holding period as I am trading about the same markets uh, with the correlation of, you know, 0.8 or 0.85 to, to what I'm doing. Then, then I kind of like would say, well, why would I do this? I can just, you know, use my own system and um, get roughly the same, the same result. Any thoughts, Jerry? Well, I mean, I just have extreme thoughts, you know, kind of like uh, negative on, oh, I never do short-term stuff. Never invest and never pay it no mind whatsoever. Never going to do anything long only in the stock market. Way too risky for me. Uh, and so I just think that uh, I have my, you know, trend following 10 commandments that, uh you know, I'm not going to be happy with if I'm investing in somebody who is vol targeting or um, not trading all markets the same way, not trading the shorts the same way as the longs, on and on, you know, we've talked about them. So uh, I've pretty, and, and so then I think uh, I kind of have what I think is sort of robust ideas. And so that really limits my creativity. And so I find it probably difficult to, to, uh, think that I, I'm going to be happy with investing in other CTAs when I could just sort of, I'm only going to be happy with what I believe in. So why not just trade 50 different systems with 50 different entries, 50 different exits, et cetera, and sort of cover the range of all possibilities that all acceptable strategy, acceptable strategies to me would cover. So so I guess I'm back to like why invest in anyone else when I can kind of do it myself. And then someone would say, well, uh, I've, I, though I, I understand, but if you added so-and-so into your portfolio, I've done the research and it would improve your performance and lower your uh, risk. And I would say, oh, yeah, but I've researched that CTA as well, and they violate some of my ideas. So I can't do that. And so at the end of the day, someone would say, well, I don't like your ideas that much. And you were wrong to exclude these people. And I would say, oh, yeah, okay, you're probably right. It does look like I was wrong. And I shouldn't have had those negative attitudes about what those people were doing. But I did, and I do, and I can't stop myself. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, I think it is important uh, with all investments, not necessarily just uh, whether you choose, uh, you know, how you choose another manager. It's important to have certain uh, rules that you follow. Uh, you know, as Larry Hyde says, don't have goals, have rules. So uh, nothing wrong with that and stick to them. Um, to answer your question, Brian, I mean, clearly if you're looking for more uh, than three trend followers. I mean, you, you've got three on the show that might work very well for you, but if you want even more than that, I think it is important, joking aside, I mean, I think it's important to fundamentally understand why they are different. You know, are they different because they trade different markets? Are they different because they have different, you know, underlying models? I mean, there is a difference, in my opinion, between tr trading breakouts and trading, say, time series momentum or moving average crossover. I mean, that could add a bit of diversification. And even managers with high correlation can, from time to time, produce very high return dispersion. So, you know, that that's another thing to, to look at. Um, 
And uh, But deep down, I mean, if you're in the trend-following space, there aren't that many pure trend followers left, uh, uh, frankly. So um, I don't think it's going to be that difficult to um, to find uh, the managers you're looking to invest with. In terms of the short-term space, I mean, I understand why Moritz is doing what he's doing. And I think that can make sense for some people, of course, absolutely, to to uh, diversify it further in, into different niches. Um, if you have rules like Jerry that says, no, I don't believe in that, then don't. Um, um, but if you're an endowment or a pension fund, you probably have to uh, do it. So that makes sense. Um, but as a private individual, sure. I mean, if you can find managers you truly believe in and and you understand why they make money and, and believe that they will continue to have an edge to do so, um, why not? Um, so I'm kind of probably in the middle between of, of all of this. Um, so, But I think the most important thing, Brian, is try and understand why you think they're different and why you think they'll continue to make money. All right. We have two more questions, so it's uh, uh, it was a there's a lot in the mailbag this week. Uh, this is from Maurici from Portland. So now we're all the way to the U.S., uh, which is nice. Let's see. In this day and age of so-called financial pundits and naively uh, that naively assume that they can predict the markets based on false macro and fundamental premises, it is refreshing to hear your guys uh, hear guys like you. Uh, that have the humility of admitting that it is worthless to try and predict the future and instead follow trends by applying systematic rules. Given that one of your main principles of trend following is cutting your losses short, could you please elaborate a bit on what would be your typical stop loss in percentage terms once you enter a new position? Do you apply the same initial stop loss rule across all asset classes or do you use specific ones for each asset class? So first of all, thanks for the question. Um, uh, this is actually something we've talked about um, on a number of occasions, um, um, but it's always good to um, to to um, to get a question like this. Um, I think we all, uh, well, maybe not actually. Here's here's a little bit of a difference. So on our part um, at Don, we treat all markets equal. Uh, we actually don't use stop losses like the classical stop loss. I'll let Morris and, and Jerry talk about that. Um, but I think there's nothing, I mean, there's you could take the one philosophy saying we treat all markets equal and then you construct your portfolio. Of course, you don't want to trade, you know, 95% of the markets in one sector and then 5% in a few other sectors. You want to have a, a well-diversified portfolio. So you can either treat treat them completely equal like we do or you can do, as I know Morris and Jerry um, does, um, which is looking at the construction a little bit of the portfolio in terms of whether there are more markets that are highly correlated and whether they should have a different allocation. So let me um, let me let you guys uh, talk a little bit about uh, about that. And also in terms of the size of of stop loss, since we don't lose stop loss, I'm going to defer that also to Jerry and Moritz in terms of what's a sensible risk portray to take. So we're back to the ATR in uh, one way or another, and and maybe just an example because I think what I picked up he was saying, do we have a constant or an, an equal amount of uh, distance percentage-wise um, from our entry to the stop, right? And and maybe an example to understand this is just imagine for a second that WTI crude oil traded at a hundred, and also imagine that. 10-year U.S. bonds traded at 100, and we got a new signal. 
then because they have different volatilities, crude oil generally being uh, more volatile than 10-year U.S. notes, um, the stop that I will have in my for WTI crude oil is going to be farther away from my entry point, right? Maybe at 90, maybe 10% away, maybe 5% away. I don't know. It, it depends on the more recent average to range of the market. But it's going to be tighter, Um for the 10-year notes because their average to range is generally smaller. So maybe that stop is at 98 or at 97 or something like that. And I'm now going to size my trade such that if the stop were hit, both will have the impact will be an equal loss. So it's loss equalization, the same amount of money lost in percentage terms of my equity for both of those trades. This is how I look at that. But as you can see from my explanation, this means that this is not a constant thing. It's not 1% lower from my entry for all of the markets or, you know, 2 or 3 or 5% lower. Uh, it depends on volatility and it depends on recent volatility especially. I'm sure we're in total agreement. I'll say it uh, slightly different. I think for me it is 100% always consistent from the point of looking at how many ATRs. Exactly. Yes. Always the same ATR. Yes, always the same. Two ATRs, three ATRs, five ATRs, 10 ATRs. That's the stop loss. And all markets, longs and shorts. Asset classes, yes. Markets, yes. Bitcoin, yes. Crude, Bitcoin, same Swiss stuff. franc. Yeah. Now, and the percentage loss of the AUM is always the same. So yeah. it's two different questions too. Like, okay, I've done the back test and I have my system, uh, what kind of leverage do I want to use? And that's going to go right back to my average trade is when I take a loss, I'm going to lose 50 basis points, 20 basis points, 75, whatever your choice is, and that feeds right into your overall uh, risk. And uh, then that's the first choice. And the second choice, or maybe the first choice, is uh, uh, how many ATRs I'm going to Give. And that's more of a technical, ana not technical analysis, but a system decision. Because like I said earlier, uh, putting on uh, a trade and giving it one ATR, your win percentage is going to be in the 20s or the 30s. It's going to be too low. Giving 20 ATRs, it's going to be high win percentage, but you're not taking small losses. So you got to move that in a little bit. And from a system point of view... Uh, what's the optimal stop loss placement? Don't want to take too big a losses, but I don't want to get, keep getting whipsawed in and out, in and out. So two different issues. Uh, how much of your bankroll are you going to lose when you when you uh, take a loss? And how close is that stop loss going to be? It's just like your exit. Am I going to use 100-day moving average, 200-day moving average, 20-day moving average? 20-day moving average is too close. Uh, it's not going to be profitable. You're going to get whipsawed. One ATR, too close. Same decision. Uh, then the separate decision, when I do get stopped out on my stop loss, how much am I going to lose? Two different uh, things you got to come up with, two different decision-making processes. Yeah, and I think since you did uh, ask about that as well, I mean, I think uh, that often you will come across us saying trade small so you can stay in the game. Um, uh, but of course, as Jerry says, I mean, your risk tolerance is really your individual risk tolerance. But I think you'll find a lot of uh, traders maybe risking 25 to 50 basis points uh, overall for that market. That could be broken down in a few different entries uh, with different look back periods. But 
we're not advocating using you know three or five percent risk per trade or per market. Uh, that's gonna get you uh, into trouble um, sooner than 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 not. So yeah, just be careful with that. Final question. Now we head back to uh, the shores of one of the Italian lakes. Uh, this question comes in from. Michael, and this is more of a um, how to structure your business kind of uh, question, I feel. Um, so uh, he, uh, Michael writes, I noticed from your comments that some of you do employ traders at your funds. Being fully systematic, why does there need to be this human element? Why not just program the computer to put in the orders from a business point of view? Why incur these personnel costs? So I think he's right. In, um you could. There's no problem with doing that, and uh, I think some of the markets, some of the probably don't. You still have to make a phone call, probably, and some of them. Uh, but a human being can sort of sit there and watch and make sure the computer's doing the right thing and hit the button to say go or just monitor. But yeah, I don't. I'm not going to argue against that. I'm sure some people do it, and it works great. Yeah. What about you, Mort? Same here. Same here. I mean. Um... I produce a daily order sheet, which uh, I send in by email. And like, you know, that, that part of the process could be automated, no doubt about it. And, and maybe I, I, I should do it. There's, you know, there's that manual thing that I do every day, which I'm sure a clever programmer could take off my hands and just get automated. But then on the other hand, I don't mind doing it. It is like really not time consuming. Um, you know, it's, it's kind of like a five minute job if that, when uh, it, it it forces me to look at the thing, um, have a look at the positions, what's going on. So I'm, you know, I, I don't mind doing it. It's just my routine and my habit, which I'm uh, very happy with. So um, there's no, no real massive reason at the moment to make me change that. So I, like Jerry said, I mean, I get where you're coming from, Michael. You could say, yeah, I mean, I can save a little bit of costs on having uh, personnel to uh, oversee what the computer is doing. However, I would say that uh, it can, uh, from time to time, be a very good idea to have people uh, oversee what the computer do, because the computer will only do what we put into it, and uh, mistakes do happen. Um, I've certainly come across uh, stories of people where uh, a, a change to their code suddenly produced outside size of trades which weren't caught in time, costing the firm, um, you know, millions of uh, dollars. Uh, we know from the recent books coming out uh, about Renaissance Technologies that even firms with that uh, enormous amount of uh, you know mathematical brain power behind them that they had errors in their in their code. So nobody is perfect. Um, I think the other. So I think you know from that from a business perspective, you could argue both ways. You can say, yeah, I can save some money on salaries. On the other hand, people who um, can view the trades before they get uh, to the exchange can uh, maybe catch something that might pay for their salaries many times. Who knows? Um, the other thing I would say, just uh, as an, uh, you know, like uh, Jerry suggested, there are markets clearly where you don't need a human to to add value to the execution. Uh, it's so liquid and 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 a computer can do that um, automatically without a doubt. Um, but there are smaller markets where clearly they're, you know, they're not liquid enough to just leave it to the computers, at least not in our view. So we, 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 we are, we're still firmly believer that you need to have a human uh, 
person reviewing all the orders before they go in, and and that's what we do. It doesn't take long, but it adds value. We think um, we can see that from our slippage, um, and uh, so yeah, I mean. Personal choice, of course, Michael, at the end of the day, um, I think you can argue uh, both ways, depending also on what markets you trade. If you're trading liquid stocks, uh, maybe not a big problem. If you're trading like we do, smaller commodities from time to time, um, you know, execution does some, sometimes require a bit of uh, experience and uh, finessing uh, to get a, a decent price. So anyways, hope that was useful uh, in terms of response. Before we come to an end, uh, it's been a long conversation today. We're already at one hour and almost 30 minutes. Let me quickly run. We didn't even get to the Louis Bacon story that came out this week about him giving back uh, investors money. But think about whether you have any thoughts on that, Jerry and Moritz. Let me just quickly run through the markets uh, or the performance, I should say, um, where we stand as of Thursday. Um and uh, I actually think Friday was, uh, so yesterday was a, probably a good day for most CTAs. But anyways, as of Thursday, the Beta 50 index was pretty much flat for the month of November, up 6.02 for the year. Sockgen trend, completely flat, pretty much, four basis points up for the month, up 6.04 for the for the year. Sockgen trend, down about 30 bips uh, for the month, up uh, 8.59 for the year. Sockgen uh, short-term traders index, um, up about 67 basis basis points for the month of November, up 2.73 for the year, and the Bridge Alternatives Index up a quarter percent uh, for the month and up 8.76 for the year. Any final thoughts? Um, the news came out this week, Louis Bacon, after almost 30 years, sending back investor money, something he's done on a number of occasions um, through his career. Um, is this a sign that it's getting, it's harder to being a quote-unquote discretionary global macro trader these days, back to where we almost started our conversation today? I think it's hard. I think uh, it's how much is it worth to you to keep going? He'll keep going. He said he's going to keep going with his own uh, money. So it's always been hard, but is, uh, is now the right time to be optimistic or pessimistic? That's the big question. Exactly. And I think it's. I mean, I think what you touched on right there, uh, Jerry, is quite uh, interesting as well. And that is, he'll keep going with his own money. So maybe it just means that there are certain things we can't do today with I don't know how many billions they were managing. Um, but there still doesn't mean that you can't do other things. Uh, you know, with a smaller uh, base of uh, AUM. Oh, I I took it a little bit differently. Uh, he's just got too much money. Yeah. Personally, <laughs> why should I wake up and have these headaches? Uh, yeah, and I don't care who you are and how you've been trading. It's uh, you know we love our clients. There's nothing like them, but they they add to our burden. The market is bad enough, and so he's getting he's getting uh, rid of some headaches, regardless. Yeah, you know? absolutely. That's a good point. Um, all right. Well, on that note, we're going to wrap up uh, this week's uh, conversation, and. As mentioned earlier, if you have any questions for us for next week, uh, do send them in, uh, info at toptradersonplug.com. So um, from Jerry, more to me, thanks so much for listening, and we look forward to being back with you next week. 
Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.